0: Welcome to Thought Crime and Keto Crime, where Tracy does the sleuthing so you don't have to. Welcome to Thought Crime and Keto Crime, where Tracy does the sleuthing so you don't have to.
1: Hey everyone, Keto Comic here. Welcome to Keto and Crime and Thought Crime. Today I've got an interesting story for you with an interesting uh, follow-up to it. Um, today we're going to talk about the infamous Pilot Flying J truck stop scandal, rebate scandal, and we're going to get an opportunity to talk with my friend Van Hickman, who was a auditor on that case and many others, into how actual accounting scams and financial scams are investigated. I think it's a very interesting uh, study. We've covered a lot of major accounting scams such as uh, Help South, Enron, WorldCom, Fruitcake Company. We've, we've covered a, uncovered a lot of those scandals and all of them really hinged on how they were investigated. So, we've not really got an in-depth look into how investigators actually handle that stuff. So, I thought it would be interesting. But, for the interview with Van, let me give you a brief synopsis of just how of just how this Pilot Flying J scam went down. Okay, for those of you that don't know, and I spend a lot of time on the road for comedy, so it most major uh, you know, most major interstates you have a lot of truck stops available. And among them among the most popular are Pilot Flying J, which are the same company, the company we're gonna talk about. Headquarters in Knoxville, Tennessee. You also have Loves, you have Travel Authority, you have Stuckies, you have a lot of other different companies out there, but Pilot Line J is by far the biggest. It was started in nineteen six 1960, in nineteen sixty nine by Big Jim Haslam uh, as one gas station. It eventually grew into the monster that we know today, offering everything from mechanic services to you know showers, everything that you would. Uh, find in a truck stop. For those of you that don't know, truck stops are kind of a phantom economy. You may think they're just for gas and food, but within them, truckers can do everything they would be able to do in a small town. There's post, you know, postmasters there, there's uh, check cashing, There's they'll even give them advances on their paychecks. I mean, there's all these services that are only available to truckers at these places. So it's kind of a phantom economy, just one pivot in the huge... Phantom economy, that is trucking Well, for a long time pilot operated as pilot. So yeah, all, the, all these pilot truck stops up and down the interstate. Then they merged with Flying J, who was another smaller truck stop company that was in Chapter eleven bankruptcy. And they actually purchased Flying J out of Chapter eleven bankruptcy in two thousand nine, merging the company into what we know it is today Pilot Flying J. Well, they added on new uh new, new pumps, new services. And so the one thing that they were lacking that other competing chains, like loves, like travel authority, like things of that nature had was a rebate program. And what this is is a loyalty program. They reward customers and mainly trucking companies for only using their stations. So they offered a membership rebate card to various trucking companies saying that if you exclusively use Pilot Flying J for your diesel fuel, we will give you a percentage of that money back as a rebate. So it's it's the same as you using your Shell card or your Mapco card or your Chevron card to get, you know, two or three cents, five cents off at the pump, that kind of thing. Instead of giving them the money off at the pump, they were just going to send them a check at the end of the year for a percentage of all the diesel they had purchased. And, uh, of course, trucking companies jumped all over this because it's a a money savings. It's a check they can count on at the end of the year. So they gave all of their company drivers Pilot Flying J cards to use, and insisted they only use Pilot Flying J when available. They also offered their, you know, their contracted drivers, their drivers that were, you know, owner-operators or even lease-to-own that had to pay their own fuel expenses, they were also offered the opportunity to get their own Pilot flying J cards, and they could cash in on that as well. So not only did you have major trucking companies that were doing this for their, their company drivers, their employees, they had also offered the opportunity out to contracted drivers as well to cash in on that. So you had lots of these companies signing up for this program you know, dreaming of all these big savings they were going to get because Pilot Blind J was offering about 5% rebate. Now, for a trucking company that probably purchases about 10,000 gallons a month per one or two trucks, this can result in some substantial check coming in at the end of the year. So just think about that. All right. So, things started going along well until about 2011 when some trucker, truck companies, their accountants actually decided to take a look at their checks and decided based on their fuel purchase records, the amount of gallons that they knew their company drivers had purchased. Based on this check they got, they realized their check might be a little bit light. So you had a couple of uh, companies led by a company called Western Freight Lines, decided to launch their own internal investigation of how off these rebate checks were. On the flip side, you had independent drivers who were noticing that their rebates weren't as big as they should have been, and then you had regular old run-of-the-mill customers that weren't part of these rebate programs complaining that the price at the pump, the price on the soda, the price on the chips or maybe just a penny or two off at the register. I mean, this can happen once or twice. Nobody's going to notice it, but eventually it's going to get noticed. And so there were a lot of, you know, reasonable inquiries with the company as to why these pr- this pricing was off. Um, current Pilot Blind J President, Mark Hazelwood, contended there was no shenanigans going on, that the Rebates were 100% fair. He said, I'm not against the notion that we might have made a clerical era, but it's not intentional. And to top it off, the Pilot Flying J chain was originally owned by the Haslam family. Younger brother Bill Haslam was a governor of Tennessee at that time, and older brother Jimmy, that actually ran Pilot Flying J for many, many years had recently purchased the NFL's Cleveland Browns. So he wasn't even in Knoxville at the time this was going on. In fact, the company was in whole ran by Mark Green, Hazel, Hazel Green. So the company was in part ran by Hazelwood and a select other executives. Um, so a bunch of other inquiries went on. Finally, in April of 2011, You had a whistleblower that worked for the company, a low-level accountant that worked for the company actually did reach out to the FBI's tip line and tip them off that these rebate shortages were actually intentional. And they were the executives running the scam were actually betting on that it would never be noticed, and the few that did notice that they could simply pay them off by giving them the rest of their money and it would never be mentioned again kind of thing. So a two-year investigation launched where the FBI began to secretly watch the company. They began to send in wires on whistleblowers to tape certain uh, conversations that were going on. It was at this time that Mark Hazelwood got himself into more trouble by uttering some very vile racist and misogynistic things while talking to another executive these recordings are public record that you can find them on youtube mark hazelwood pilot flying j tapes just google it i'm not going to play them here because they are truly vile and i don't want to get a strike against my channel so but you can find them very easily so all of this culminated into an fbi raid of pilot flying j headquarters in April of twenty thirteen, tax day, April fifteenth, twenty thirteen. The FBI raided Pilot Flying J Headquarters and basically took it over. The trial was ongoing. In fact it was only recently settled in twenty eighteen. The main defendant was Mark Hazelwood, who was still denying that he had that he was the mastermind. He turned it around and blamed Jimmy Haslam, but I'm been, I don't know if maybe Hazelwood didn't realize, but Jimmy, the Haslam family had pretty much been bought out, had been bought out by this time. They started out as 100% owners of Pilot Flying J. And by 2023, the family will only own about 20% of Pilot Flying J because they have entered into an agreement in the early 2000s with, with Greenspan's Berkshire Hathaway Company as well as FJ Management where they will over time dilute the Haslam's ownership of Pilot Blind Jay. By 2023, they were only own 20% of the company. So the Haslam's were kind of on their way out. They were retiring, so to speak. But for him to point the entire entirety of the situation at Haslam just showed how incompetent he really was. And the only reason I'm saying this, I usually don't take sides, but it's only after extensive research and conversations with Van, who actually investigated the fraud there as a forensic accountant, all roads pointed to Hazelwood. There was not one shred of evidence that connected jimmy haslam or governor bill haslam who really had no part in the business at all to this scandal in 2018 a final verdict came down years in federal prison there were other prison sentences for other pilot executives that were in on it and they pilot as a company already began paying back these trucking companies for what they had stolen from them. And in addition, they were ordered to pay an additional $94 But to their credit, they were already starting to pay these people back of their own accord without a court order. So I think they were trying to make things right. I don't normally come out on the side of big business, but in this case, I'm going to say they were trying to do the right thing. I think this was a few rogue employees trying to make a little extra money. It was rumored that... Uh, Hazelwood at one point profited about 27 million Um, in salary based on bonuses that came from the money that was collected through this scam so quite a blight on the a history of an otherwise honest good company so that in a nutshell is the pilot flying J rebate scam and now let's get into my conversation with my good friend van Hickman can tell you more about the investigation of this crime and others as a forensic accountant. I think you're going to enjoy it. Let's dive in. Hey, welcome to Keto and Crime and Thought Crime. Today, I have a very special guest. Uh, Since we've been looking at a lot of white collars, particularly accounting scams, we covered WorldCom, we covered Enron, we covered HealthSouth most recently, and even uh, the case of the uh, Austin-based fruitcake factory that (laughs) experienced some uh, accounting fraud, I decided I'd bring in uh, some expert advice. I've got uh, my good friend, Van Hickman, who is a professional ring announcer. He uh, announces for both wrestling and uh, mixed martial arts, as well as being a a very clean church, church church-clean comedian that I've worked with for a very long time. Um, in fact he was one of the first clean comedians I ever met and despite all the bad things I'd heard about them I fought the <laughs> I fought the notion that I actually liked the guy <laughs> so we actually became good friends he helped me clean up my comedy and I helped him kind of let his hair down so to speak a little bit with his
0: what uh, little bit of hair I have left
1: yeah <laughs> but more and more but that's not what we're talking about today which we're, ta- we're talking about his alternative identity as a certified public accountant and more importantly, a corporate auditor that has investigated crimes as small as $1,000 missing from petty cash all the way up to millions of dollars missing, such as the famous Tennessee Flying J Pilot truck stop case that was news a few years ago. And he's just going to talk to us today about his background as well as what auditors look for when they're investigating these types of crimes.
0: So uh, man yeah yeah thanks for having me on uh this is uh, really cool I, I like that you're uh, doing this podcast and uh just talking about white collar crime it's obviously it's been around for for years uh when i first started doing it back in uh, 93 1993 uh, I think it was the first fraud investigation I, I ever did. We didn't even have a really a good word for it. We just called it fraud investigations. Uh, it wasn't until a few years after I got into it that we really started to use the word forensic accountant, uh, which is which is a big thing now. Um, but but back in the early and mid '90s, we didn't even didn't even have that phrase. Uh, so uh, it was kind of cool to be around in some of the what I would consider some of the earlier years. Uh, of of the industry of being a fraud investigator or a forensic accountant. So, uh, but yeah, just you know some of the things that that I've worked on as far as uh, different frauds uh, other than than the the you know the big famous one that you mentioned the pilot Flying J diesel fuel uh, their their big rebate fraud that they did, um, which I think several people have been finally been sentenced uh, mm-hmm. to prison, but some of them went uh and some are still maybe appealing uh their mm-hmm. sentences but uh, or their their convictions. Um but yeah I've I've you know done some some really interesting cases, even though they may not have been very elaborate or may not have been huge dollar amounts. Uh the one that you mentioned that was a thousand dollars. I call it a thousand dollars. It was actually nine hundred and ninety nine dollars. Uh but we think there was just a math error somewhere and it really was a thousand, but uh officially it was $999. Uh, but yeah, it was just a, a, a person that worked uh, at uh, it was Nashville Tech uh, at the time, uh, Nashville Tech Community College. Uh, she was one of the cashiers, I guess they had multiple cashiers and a big walk in vault. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had each person was assigned multiple uh, locked money bags. Is this
1: Matt, is this for tuition money, or was this like money taken in from sporting events, or concessions, or
0: dining hall, or? I, I'm I'm not entirely sure at this point. Keep in mind it was 25 years ago, <laughs> <So> like, <laughs> I honestly don't remember what the money was for. Uh, but she was a cashier okay. uh, for something, and it, it, it may have been tuition. Um, but but she had uh, she was supposed to have a thousand dollars in in the bag and. Uh, you know somebody walked in one day and had to move her bag to get to their bag and realized that it felt very light uh so they called in uh, security and the internal auditors and, and they looked at it and realized yeah the, the bag's empty uh what makes the case so memorable and interesting to me was that i had just taken a class on inter uh interviewing and interrogation strategies and so we sat down with the lady and talked to her for probably a couple of hours one day. And she just said, Well, you know, I, I don't I don't know what to tell you. I didn't take the money. Uh, but it was a locked money bag and her and the head of security were the only two that had a key. Yeah. So <laughs> we were pretty sure she took the money. Um, so we, we waited a few days and then went back and tried to talk to her again. And just said, Look, you know, my, my boss had done all the, the interviewing and stuff. And I was just taking notes. And so my boss talks to her for about another 45 minutes and he looks at me like, I don't know. I, I can't get her to confess. We know she took the money. And all she kept saying was, you, you can ask questions all day, but we're gonna come up to the same conclusion. I didn't take the money. So my boss looks at me, kind of exasperated, like I, I don't know what else to do. And I said, look, and I don't remember the lady's name, but maybe it was Tracy, whatever. I said, look, Tracy, I get it, um, you know, I I haven't been doing this very long, but I've had another case that was just like this. A young lady like yourself, she took some money that wasn't hers. Uh, We talked to her, she said she didn't do it. We came back a few days later and gave her another chance to tell the truth. And she did. And she finally came clean. She told us the truth. And afterwards, she came back to me she was like, "Van, I appreciate you so much giving me another chance. Because for the last three days, Ever since I lied to you the other day, I haven't been able to eat. I haven't been able to sleep. The guilt's been eating me up inside and I just can't stand it anymore. I'm so glad you gave me a chance to tell the truth again. And, and I, was, I just feel like the burden, like the weight of the world has been lifted off my shoulders. And Tracy, I think you're going to feel the same way today once you finally tell me the truth. And she just broke down and starts bawling her eyes out and says, yes, I took the money. And you're right. The guilt's been tearing me up. I can't sleep. It's horrible. So she finally admitted it. So we had her, you know, do the whole written confession and all that kind of cool stuff, which was always fun. And then she leaves and, uh, I looked at my boss and I was like, that is so cool. I just made all that crap up. (laughs) (laughs) But, but that was one of the strategies, uh, that I had just learned like two weeks before, uh, Mm -hmm. for, for how to do interrogations. And so. Uh, that's always one of my, one of my favorite stories, just, uh, just because as an interrogator or an investigator, uh, it's okay to a lot of people. And uh, we did it all the time.
1: Well, (laughs) Uh, may I ask what happened to her i mean did I'm sure she lost her job, but was she also with charges filed or
0: yeah d- charges were filed uh, uh for nine hundred and ninety nine dollars in the city of Nashville uh she probably got put on probation and was told to pay the money back uh mm-hmm. It was her first first conviction of anything, so um those pretty small potatoes in in Nashville for did, a thousand bucks
1: uh did she tell you why she did it?
0: Um, I I don't remember exactly why she did it, but she did tell us that she was going to pay it back after she got her tax refund.
1: That, that <laughs> I asked that reason for a strategic re- I asked that question for a strategic reason because I got to interview the former CFO and founder of Help South, who was involved in that four point six billion dollar accounting right. fraud. And he told me that white collar criminals are a lot more calculating than your average what he called regular criminal, like somebody's gonna go in and rob a bank, they have one reason, they want that money. They have no intent, they've planned it out, they have no intention of paying that money back, they want that money. Whereas with white collar criminals, most of the time, they have good intentions, like it's for a reason, they always plan to make good on the money, either by paying it back, or they really think, like in the case of Health South, they thought that doing what they did to get their stock price up, that the company would eventually catch up and actually, be worth that amount, and so it would just kind of be a moot subject. And he said, lots right. of times they have a reason for what they're doing; they're very calculating. They don't even consider it fraud when they're doing it, you know.
0: No, right. the I, the The world famous fraud triangle that's been around for years. There's there's three components that, uh, once they come together, it just makes the makes the environment and the, and the opportunity ripe for uh, somebody to commit a, a white collar crime is the, the justification. You have to be able to justify why you're doing it. Well, I'm doing it because I'm underpaid or underappreciated. Um, well, it's been a long time since I've actually had to recite the three parts of the triangle. Uh, <laughs> um, motive, uh, you have to have a reason to want to do mm-hmm. it. And then, uh, and then, of course, o- opportunity. Because mm-hmm. you could want to commit a fraud and you could even justify that you deserve money. But if you don't have an opportunity, you're not going to do it. Because, right. I mean, that's... That's a key, key component of it. Uh, so, those, those three parts uh, really have to, to be there. And, and uh, the, you know, that's why companies have internal controls. Uh, I think the, the internal controls are for the 80% of the people that probably wouldn't ever steal from you, 10% never would, uh, 80%, uh, you know, if the circumstances were right, they could. Uh, Then there's 10% 10 that are just out to get you no matter what. They don't care. Exactly, exactly. Uh, So the the internal controls are for those 80% in the middle to help keep them uh, on the straight and narrow.
1: Well, don't you think though that white collar, both your techniques for investigating it as well as the way that you can do it has gotten much more sophisticated because now everything's digital pretty much, you know, cash is kind of becoming the least popular way to to pay. So it's not like you can just take a hundred bucks from your drawer anymore. You know, everything's credit card. So the ways that things are done is a lot more, you know, advanced, how thing, how you, it's you, cut down on a lot of that. Just being able to take a, th- you know, a hundred dollars from a, a teal.
0: It, yeah. Well it, it's cut down on, obviously it, it, you're probably right. It's cut down on cash theft, but as soon as a new technology comes out, it's somebody, instantly figures out a way to use it to commit uh, a fraud or a theft. Uh, I mean, if they can't steal cash and all they get is credit cards, fine. I'll steal credit card numbers and go out and buy stuff. Right. Uh, or if I'm working at the store that's receiving the credit cards, okay, fine. I will, uh, I'll figure out a way to charge something uh, and, and just take, take merchandise and mm-hmm. say that it was paid for with somebody else's credit card or, um, Well, there's, yeah, there's just, uh, there's still so many, so many things. I mean, they will find a new way every time a new technology comes out. So, Mm -hmm. and it always feels like, um, and maybe this isn't as bad as it used to be, but the, the white collar investigators and the companies are always a step behind because they don't know what new methodologies the crooks have come up with Mm -hmm. until, until somebody gets caught doing it. Mm-hmm. And then you realize, oh, there's a new way to do this. Uh, so then everybody has to learn how to investigate and then how to prevent, uh, or try to prevent, uh, that new methodology for committing the fraud. And, Definitely. and you're right, when you, I, I do want to tell you this too, I, I never got to use this in a real case, uh, but I've talked to people that, that actually use this once, uh, talking about going old school with with the way, the way things were done. Uh, an investigator had to help somebody figure out there there was money leaving the company and he couldn't the company couldn't figure out who was taking it or where it was going. And so he basically just came in, took a a, a bank statement, which the back then they actually still got the hard copies of the checks back, the canceled mm-hmm. checks actually came back in their bank statement every month. So the investigator took all of the checks out of the envelope that came in with the bank statement, <coughs> took the checks and just threw them on a desk. And started to kind of sift in through him with his hands and then he pulled out a check and held it up to the owner of the business and said here's your fraudulent check and i said well how do you know that this is a fraudulent check and he said all the other checks are still flat this one's been folded up in a wallet and if you're writing checks to your utility company or to a, a business to buy supplies they're going to take that check along with all of their other checks, keep them flat. They're probably going to put a paper clip on it or something and take it to the bank and make a deposit. They're not going to fold it up and stick it in their pocket. Right. And sure enough, that was, they they found out that that check had been forged by, you know, somebody that worked at the company. And so uh, we can't really use that technique so much anymore because you don't get canceled checks back in your bank right. statement. And and fewer people, like you said, are, fewer people are writing checks. Um, so uh it was just a a fun uh years ago a a fun little technique that was was possible uh but you're really not going to use that much anymore today
1: well interesting you should mention that because the the fruitcake thing that i I mentioned it was from way back in the 90s um when checks were still written and the way this guy was the uh, controller of the establishment and he was basically like running up his credit cards and living this luxurious lifestyle, and then writing company checks to cover his own credit card uh, bills. And what he was mm-hmm. doing was writing the check, mailing it, then creating another check in QuickBooks, making it one digit difference between that check number and the check number he had written, and then shredding that check so that it was, you know, the money was logged as leaving the account. And it took like an accounting assistant that like he did this for like five years and got away with something like three million dollars. And an accounting assistant discovered it much the same way by looking through like they had binders of old checks, mm-hmm. looking through it and realizing because everybody at the company it was an understood thing that QuickBooks is one digit off. So mm-hmm. he had established that precedent as wow. what he was doing was just a glitch in the system. And if she hadn't dug into those Cancel checks, it would never have been discovered. So it's just interesting. Like that fraud would never occur today because no one writes checks.
0: Yeah. And I've used QuickBooks before in in controllership jobs where I've been over, run some accounting offices before. And I loved it. And I love the ability to go in and make changes on things like that if I needed to. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, yeah, it was a huge risk. Uh, that anybody that had access to log into the system could just go in and change whatever. Uh, You you could write a check to Home Depot or write a a check to yourself and then Mm -hmm. immediately go back into the system and say, oh no, that check went to Home Depot. And
1: change it, yeah.
0: And change it. And as far as QuickBooks goes, yeah, it was Home Depot. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: So yeah, it's
1: uh,
0: a double-edged sword. It's convenient, but also risky. Mm
1: All right, well, let's get into what's the biggest and probably the biggest case you've ever been a part of investigating and can you give us kind of a synopsis of that and what what, what you did to investigate it and what you
0: found? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you what, what little bit I can, uh, which sure, is- the, sure. whatever the, you're legally allowed to tell yeah. us. Uh, you know, the, the Pilot Flying J uh, diesel fuel rebate fraud is probably the biggest thing I've uh, worked on as far as the, the dollar volume of, of how much happened. Uh, the amount of records that had to be combed through, uh, there's actually, it was actually a firm in Nashville, CPA firm in Nashville that was hired by the company to come in and do the internal investigation. There, there was another CPA firm, uh, assigned by the courts to be the external independent, uh, independent review. But, uh, but another firm, the the company actually hired and said, Hey, we want to get ahead of it. Tell us, tell us the truth. How bad is it? What happened? Uh, So they had, I believe it was, I can't remember if it was, I think 50 total. So almost 40 staff accountants and about a dozen senior level CPAs uh, that came in and reviewed records. We were literally there. Um, the, The FBI and the IRS raided their offices on April 15th, seven years ago.
1: So this this was big. I mean, Pilot yeah. and Pilot. For those of you who don't know, if you're not in the South, if you spend any time on interstates, you see major truck stop got Love. You got Pilot and Flying J. Both of those are all three of those are headquartered in Tennessee. So Pilot and Flying J had a fraud. Were they? What were they doing? Were they kind of inflating rebates or?
0: Well, deflating. deflating. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So the, the general part was, uh, and, and I think one of the first things that came out in the press, uh, was that they were this. they have salespeople in the company and they try to get, they try to talk truck lines into trying to use exclusively their truck stops right. and they say, okay, well, if you'll, if you'll use just our truck stops and don't go to these loves or these other, uh, TA, the the, the ones, uh, we'll give you a fuel card, and for every gallon of diesel fuel you buy, we'll give you five cents off, or a five cent rebate at the end of the month. Uh, And basically what they were doing was they would, the company might purchase 10,000 gallons of diesel fuel that month, and they would get a check, and they Mm -hmm. were happy. And then one day somebody said, wait a minute, I bought 10,000 gallons of diesel fuel and I was supposed to get a five cent check. That comes out to whatever my math wasn't that good. Five hundred bucks. I should have gotten a <laughs> rebate, a CPA. Uh, I should have gotten a five hundred dollar rebate, but it was only two hundred dollars. What is going on? So somebody eventually did the did the math. But a lot of the trucking companies that were uh, that were involved, they were just small mom and pop truck lines. You know, two two three four trucks. Uh, so they were just excited that they got a check they never went back and reviewed it to make sure it was for their correct amount.
1: Was it like some of the bigger lines, like a uh, Celadon or some like, uh, I don't know, U S freightways. Was it some of those big boys that maybe did the math and busted them or. Uh,
0: I don't think it was a, I don't know that it was a big company that found it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't remember that, uh, as, as far as who caught it, but it, but it, some of the bigger companies were involved, uh, you know, and we reviewed some of the ridiculously large companies. When I say ridiculously large, I didn't realize how much diesel fuel we used in America. It's, it's crazy. Just some of the, uh, some of the big trucking companies that have trucks just crisscrossing the United States all day long. Uh, I mean, they were hundreds of thousands of gallons or millions of gallons of diesel fuel every year.
1: Yeah, the economy of trucking is huge. That's how things get like. I travel a lot for comedy, so I travel in an RV, my wife and I. We crisscross the United States two or three times a year. And uh, we see these truck shops are actually little mini cities with their own little economies, you know, where these truckers live, breathe outside of their trucks. And it's a huge industry. I don't think people realize it's kind of a phantom industry that exists under everybody's nose. No one really pays any attention.
0: Yeah, and and this was just the amount of fuel that they bought from mm-hmm. one truck from one fuel stop. Right. So it, it was yeah, it's a lot of there's a lot of diesel fuel being used every day in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, as of the last re, excuse me, the last reports that I saw, there were a few people that had already gone to jail. Uh, some of the bigger bigger uh, kingpins in the in the game had uh had been convicted but they were uh they, they were appealing their convictions so i'm not sure how much time they'll spend um I'm, I'm hoping some uh if if the lesser people have already pled guilty and and are doing time uh, i would think that the people that instructed them to do this would uh, probably do some jail time as well
1: you would think but then you see yeah. the higher level executives sometimes walking free and some of the cases i've studied and then you get the lower level people that actually end up doing the hard time which is sometimes sad because they don't have the money to buy the fancy lawyers but that's another that's yeah. another controversy
0: <laughs> well it, and one of the the main people involved in i think the highest up person that was involved uh started off when he was a teenager washing dishes at a truck stop and mm-hmm. over the course of 40 years worked his way up to become an executive at uh, at Pilot Flying J, and I'm pretty sure the press release I read said he was making $27 million. I think that was per year. It didn't actually his say per year. Salary or off the fraud? I think that was his salary. Wow. Well, but his salary was probably inflated because of the fraud. Right. But he was he went worked his way up in the the trucking business or the fuel business um, from washing dishes at a truck stop to making millions of dollars a year. Uh, and then in five years went to being a convicted felon. So yeah, that's another thing with white collar crime. I guess it's the same with, with armed robbery. Nobody thinks they're going to get caught until they do.
1: Exactly. And what, um, what techniques, uh, what are the common forensic, like forensic accounting basically means you're kind of working your way backwards in the books, correct? Like you're starting with the end point and then going back to the beginning.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the definition of forensic is anything that has to do with presenting evidence in a court of law. Right. Uh, So we're just doing accounting that has a a decent chance of being presented in court, whether it's criminal or civil. Right. Uh, But yeah, you you just have to. Of course, you can't. You can't really do a fraud investigation unless there's the the first piece, which is the um, I'm using the right word. There's there has to be predication. You have to have something to investigate. uh, when I used to do this work uh, years ago, uh, people would come to me and say, "Well, I think so and so is stealing money." Yeah, you know who they are. I'm like, "Okay, great. How are they doing it?" Well, I don't know, but they're doing it. Okay, well then there's nothing for me to investigate. You've got to tell me. You got to tell me how. What What do you think they're doing? Uh, are they embezzling by making up shell companies and getting the money out? So, once somebody gives you that part of it, and they say, "Well, this is how I think it's happening," um. Then you've got at least a starting point to to do the investigation, uh, and then you just start going into to looking at that area and turning over every stone until uh, until you until you run out of stones or or you find uh, something that clicks and it goes, oh, I think the person's right. This this does look like what they're doing. Uh, and of course, as a as a certified fraud examiner, uh, I was was and I guess I still am. Uh, bound by a, a code of ethics that says we're not allowed to say that anybody's guilty.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: that's all up to the courts, the, you know, the judges and the juries. Um, all I can do is present you with facts and I may come to you and say, well, the fact is there used to be a million dollars in the company's bank account and now it's in suspect A's bank account, <laughs> but I can't <laughs> say they're guilty. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, and there's so many tools. Uh, again, depending on what what kind of case it is, but it, in the accounting area, uh, there's there's special software that helps you go through um, mountains of data uh, at, a time, at a time. Now it's it's a lot more advanced than just trying to use an Excel spreadsheet. Um, but there there are soft there's software that will help you look for trends. Um, it, a lot of companies will have purchase thresholds, like you can. Uh, Every, uh, every manager in the company is allowed to spend up to $5,000 without uh, a higher signature from somebody above them.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
0: so you look for purchases at $4,900 to 4,999, mm-hmm. uh, because they're gonna try to spend as much as they can without hitting their threshold. Right. Um, so there's, yeah, little techniques like that. Uh, and again, there's, there's software that helps with that. There's software that can do um, relationship ana- analysis. So you can basically put in little charts and graphs that say, here's the, here's the person we think is our suspect and they're related to this person. Well, this person is related to this person. And it kind of just draws out the map of, uh, all the different people that are related and helps you figure out, Oh, well, these now, now I see a whole bunch of lines between these two people. So this may be an accomplice. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of software that helps with that type of stuff.
1: Um, how far do you get into your like? How sure are you when you figure something out like that? Before, you, or do you actually interview the suspects or the the parties of interest during the investigation? And so, if you do, how how sure are you before you start that process?
0: Well, usually, I, I'm glad you use the word interview. It, there's there's the interview and there's the interrogation, which are two totally different. Uh, processes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the interview is where you go in and ask questions and try to get as much information as you can. Uh, and the, the information, you know, it may support what you're looking for. You, you may be able to tell from the person's nonverbal behavior, which is a huge, huge portion of an investigation. Uh, it's just looking at the person's nonverbal behavior. Um, but you get information from them. Um and when you combine that with the data itself, once you're sure, and I'm, I would say probably, it's hard to put a number on it, but you know, 80% sure, 70% sure, uh, yeah, I, this person did it. Uh, then you go back and you do the interrogation. Uh, interrogations are a lot different. You're not looking for answers. Uh, you don't want information. You don't ask open-ended questions. You basically just walk in and say, okay, look, Tracy, the results of our investigation clearly show that you took the money. That's not even a question anymore. What I'm trying to find out though today is why you took the money. And let me tell you why I think you took the money. You're doing a lot of traveling. Gas is expensive in that RV. And then you just basically start giving the person different reasons to justify in their mind why they took the money. And once you hit on a, a reason that they think Will make it all okay. Then they their body uh, language will change, and they go from nope, nope, that's not it. That's not why I did it in their head. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you once you finally hit on the reason that they think might be acceptable, they'll change. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's why I did it. And then you could you you pick up on those cues, and you're like, okay, now I've got them, and I can tell that they would. They wouldn't confess to doing it for those reasons, but they will confess to doing it for this reason because they think everybody will understand. And then you just start hounding in on that point. Um, Worked with a a a lady that worked at uh, Tennessee Wildlife Resource Agency, and I told her, I said, look, you know, don't. Her big thing was that she was afraid her family wouldn't, uh, that her family would turn their back on her. Mm-hmm. And so I just said, look, you know, don't, don't sell your family short. They love you and just kept kind of going with that until she was like, okay, I, you're right. They're not going to hate me. They're, we're going to get through this together. And then she finally admitted uh, that she had taken some money. So uh, you just have to find that um, in the interrogation, you find that reason that they'll, they feel like has, uh, is socially acceptable that a good reason for them to have done it.
1: So you get the confession and then do you then like interrogate them or interview them about how they did it? And so you can find loopholes and stuff like that. The company needs to close or is that another part of it or.
0: Yeah, that, that, that's a good part. Uh, once they say they've done it, uh, of course, didn't you start reassuring them and say, look, yeah, you know, you've done the right thing by telling the truth. Um, now let's talk about, what you did, and you can exaggerate the amount because you want, you want to get them to admit to everything that they did, and and you may be missing something. So you know if, if you think they took fifty thousand dollars, you say two hundred thousand, and say okay. So the records are showing that maybe two hundred thousand dollars is missing. Oh, what? I did. I, I no, didn't take, no, no,
1: no, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I didn't take two hundred
0: thousand. I Only took fifty. Uh, you're huh. like, oh, okay. Well, at least you're admitting it. When um, you say, okay, well, how did you do it? And and you get them to write it down if they can, a lot of times they're too shaken up at that point to uh, to write it out on their own. So, you, so the interrogator would write out their confession and, and as much information as they can share with uh, as, as far as how they did it. But here's the other technique to that whole part. You don't want them to get away with saying that they signed the bottom and never read all of the details in it. So on every page, you always have at least a couple of errors if you write it out for them. You always put a couple of errors in and then have them go back and read it. And when they read it, you go back and, oh, wait, I said March 10th. I, I think that was supposed to be March 20th. Did you say March 20th? Yeah. Okay, well, let's mark that out and we'll both initial it. Um, and that way that way they've got their initials at least once or twice on every page uh, to show that they actually did review it. So. Uh, that way they can't say, well, I, I didn't read the whole confession. You you wrote it out and I just signed the last page. So uh, that was always, a uh, again, just another little technique to help make sure the conviction stood.
1: Interesting. What's the longest time you've had to interrogate somebody to get the confession? And what was the hardest to get? Uh,
0: you, there were some people that just never would confess. Uh, and and one of them was uh, a lady that she never actually confessed to taking it. She didn't take any money, uh, but she was she had a job where she could come into the office every now and then and just do some paperwork. But her her main uh, purpose in her job was to travel to hospitals. Mm-hmm. And so she would come in in the mornings and say, okay, I'm off to the hospitals to do whatever I do. And then she would disappear and go work another job.
1: So and it was then, like theft of time, theft of salary. Was,
0: yeah. Right. Theft of time and uh, yeah, her, her salary. So she would, she would come in the mornings to say, okay, I'm going off to visit my hospitals. And then she would come back at quitting time and go, Oh, what a rough day visiting my hospitals. It was really rough out there. Well, the mm-hmm. whole time she was down the street at some other company getting paid to work there, too. Uh, that one of my one of my mentors, this was very early uh, in my my fraud days, uh, one of my mentors kind of led the the interrogation on that, but w- I mean we talked to her for probably three hours, and all she would ever say was, "Well, I always put in a day's work for a day's pay. I'm like, okay, but did you work your eight hours? Well, I don't really know that eight hours is how much I'm supposed to work. Okay, well what are your office hours? Well, I don't really have office hours. So, so when is your day supposed to start? Eh, I don't really have a. So you're telling me you don't have office hours, you don't know when the day starts, when you don't know that the office hours are eight to five? No, I, I don't know that that's, I don't, is that true? Is that a thing? I, I didn't know that. I mean, she just never would admit uh, that she even knew what her normal working hours were supposed to be.
1: Wow. So she was just basically forging whatever information she was supposed to be gathering in the field. She was just making it up or...
0: Uh, yeah, I guess you, yeah, you know, and that wasn't even the the biggest uh, focus of our investigation, but yeah, uh, she was, she obviously wasn't even doing her, her job. She wasn't doing it.
1: Wow. I didn't even realize that, you know, fraud investigators would be brought in on a case like that. I figured that would be something that the company would you know, kind of maybe have a boss follower or something, but that's interesting. I've never, I didn't know that y'all like investigated things like that. I thought it was just mainly accounting fraud. That's neat.
0: Yeah. um, Just other things. And and some of the things that I did as a forensic accountant, so I would say forensic accounting is a bigger umbrella than fraud investigator. Uh, So in fraud investigator, you're specifically coming in, you think somebody took money, you're going to try to Mm. prove prove whether or not they did it. A forensic accountant. Sometimes we just got called in because people didn't know what happened to their money, uh, or their their records were in such a shambles, they didn't know that that did somebody steal from me? I don't know. I don't even know where my money is. It's I I can't make heads or tails out of my records. Uh, So we spent uh, with a CPA firm I worked for uh, several years ago. We spent 13 months in Cincinnati uh, because a government agency up there. Uh, a local agency got audited by the state and the state said that the local agency had misspent over $1 billion over the course of three or three and a half years. Wow. So our job was to help figure out, did that really happen? Or, or, and if, if it did, was it really that much money? Well, right off the bat, we walked in and said, okay, well, how much money did you get during that three and a half year period? Well, we got $700 million. Okay, well then how could you have possibly misspent 1.2 billion if if you only got 700 million? So first of all, the auditors are way off on the number in the first place. Uh, But nobody stole anything. Uh, It was literally just uh, not following best accounting practices. So we, we had to just go and say, okay, well, true. They said they spent the money on this and they weren't supposed to, but they also spent money on this over here that you could have re- you would have reimbursed them for, but they didn't claim it. So those offset. Right. So I, the last I saw, which was probably three years after that investigation started, uh, eventually it just kind of got left into the hands of the court and we, we left.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but a few years later, uh, the last I saw it got down to like 40 million uh that they possibly may have uh, actually misspent uh so i feel like we got our we, we did a good job on that one getting it down from 1.2 billion to 40 that's million a big
1: jump. that's a big yeah. That's a big drop
0: yeah.
1: yeah um did you ever do it for like families maybe where estates were left in probate did you ever go back in and do it like to settle the estate or things like that or is it mainly just corporate that you deal with
0: Mostly, I did corporate, I, I tried working with small businesses or, or, families. Um, but wow, I, like I said earlier, you have to have predication.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I had a lot of, uh, you know, people going through divorce, uh, or recently divorced and, oh, my, my husband's got millions of dollars, but he's hiding it from me. Okay. Well, where's he hiding it? I don't know. I can't okay, help well, you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, ha- where did he get it? I don't know. Okay, well, that's that's really hard to to investigate if if it's just eh, I think he's got money. You've got can't. me
1: confused with the private investigator.
0: Yes, yes, <laughs> uh, which is which? Yeah, that's a totally different uh, totally different thing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, this has been uh, great. Um, did um, as far as you know on the pilot Flying J, were they ordered to pay like financial restitution the company back to these trucking companies or
0: to the best of my memory, Tracy, I think um, part of the reason that uh, the company had the, the firm that I was working with, the reason they had us come in is because they they wanted to know how much it was, and they and they were making restitution. Okay. So I think uh, I think they were making restitution as our investigation went along, and they said, you know, even if it's close, even if we're not entirely sure that we actually shorted this company on the rebates. If it looks like we could have, we're going to pay them what we think might have been short. So, I mean, they did everything they could. Uh, so, this to wasn't make, a make company
1: policy. This was just some rogue employees that had access that did it pretty
0: much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the, of course, the, the top people who, who did get busted in it, uh, I think one of their things was that they were trying to point to the, the family that owns the company uh, or owned. Uh, the company, which was the Haslums, which at the time Governor Bill Haslam, Haslam. Yeah. <laughs> uh, was—I uh, I, don't—he he was the governor of Tennessee, so he wasn't really active with Pilot Flying J. But his brother was was the the president; uh, was running the company. Uh, of course, they they tried to say that he knew all about it, uh, but as far as I know, nobody ever came up with any proof that he had ever been informed or that he had any knowledge at all uh, of what was going on. But once he found out that it had happened. Um, like I said, I, to the best of my memory, they were really trying to do every, everything they could to make it right. Even if it cost them more than they actually shorted people in the first place.
1: Cool. Well, that that's good. That makes me feel better. So buy your gas at pilot and flying jet <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: cause yeah. they seem I'm, to be honest people.
0: <laughs> yeah. And as, as their trucks say, it's the best coffee on the interstate.
1: Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, man, this has been fun. Um, But before you go, can you give us uh, something in a ring announcer voice? I think my subscribers would enjoy that.
0: Okay, sure. Put
1: you on the spot here.
0: All right. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Keto and Crime with your host, Tracy Barkley.
1: Yay, that's awesome. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, man. I look forward to maybe performing with you again soon. And uh, thank you for coming on. I know that my subscribers are really going to enjoy that.
0: Yeah, yeah. We'll have to do some stand up soon.
1: Definitely. You have a great weekend.
0: <laughs> All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.